Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The chapter divisions, again, here aren't wildly helpful. Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3 are really part of the argument being made in the second half of chapter 2. Paul is explaining what it means to be a minister of the New Covenant. The life of a New Covenant minister illustrates the gospel he's been entrusted to preach. So Paul says, I'm like a prisoner being led about in a Roman triumph. I look and I smell like the gospel. I am being led throughout the world as a trophy of God's grace. And now Paul carries on with that flow of thought here in chapter 3. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So here we presume that Paul's opponents or rivals in Corinth had arrived carrying letters of recommendation. Now, there's a fair bit of debate here about the identity of these opponents. Again, like I said in the introductory episode, Reading the Corinthian correspondence is a little bit like listening in on a friend's conversation on his or her cell phone. You're only getting half the information. And so we're engaged in a bit of creative reconstruction here. We think that the opponents were essentially Judaizers. They may have been the very same people who had troubled the believers in Galatia. In Galatians 2, Paul spoke about certain men who came from James. That's Galatians 2.12. Now, at the Jerusalem Council, Paul and James were singing from the same song sheet. So we presume that these were people who may have been commended by James as good Christian Jewish brethren worthy of hospitality, and then they may have used that recommendation to position themselves as professional teachers or even as apostolic delegates, though that was almost certainly not what James intended, if indeed the letters of commendation were from him. Again, we're doing reconstruction here. We do know that there was a significant debate in the first generation about how Jewish the church should be, how much continuity and, and how much discontinuity is there between the Old and New Testament. That was the original question. And of course, it's still a question that Christians are wrestling with today. Is Christianity just Judaism plus Jesus? Or are we dealing with new wineskins to contain the new wine of the Spirit? So there were definitely teachers and would-be teachers out there in the first century world who were saying very different things to the Gentile inquirers than was the Apostle Paul. Whoever they were, they claimed to have letters of recommendation. And Paul says, do I need a letter like that to serve among you? You above all people should know that I do not, for you are my letter of recommendation. The fact that you were born again the fact that you are spirit-filled, the fact that you 
came to this state, humanly speaking, through my preaching and teaching, should be all the letter of recommendation that I require. Verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, Paul's standing as an apostle is confirmed by the work of the Spirit through him, which is consonant with his entire argument. Being an apostle is not about being powerful. It is about being a channel for the powerful working of the Spirit. That's a subtle but very important difference. Paul wants to be clear. He isn't saying that he is sufficient. He isn't saying that he is smart enough or noble enough or charismatic enough to be an apostle. He is saying that all his sufficiency is from God. It is what flows through him, from God to people like them, that testifies to his standing as a minister of the new covenant, which is a covenant not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Again, we recall that the background controversy here appears to have a great deal to do with how continuous or similar the new covenant is to the old covenant. And here, Paul is serving to emphasize the significant difference and discontinuity between the two. Douglas Moo explains what Paul means here. He says, For him, as this context makes quite clear, the contrast is between the old era, dominated by God's written law, and the new, dominated by God's Spirit. Quote. Now, of course, we need to be careful. The Apostle Paul was not opposed to the law. He would write later to young Timothy saying, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That's 1 Timothy 1.8. So the question isn't, is the law good or bad? The question is, how are you using it and what are you asking it to do? If you are asking it to save people, well, then you're asking it to do too much. The law never saved anybody. And if you're asking it to change the human heart, well, that's asking it to do too much as well. The law can't make sinners into saints. In fact, quite the opposite. The law tends to highlight and confirm the sinful tendencies of people. For Paul, the law was a teacher, a restrainer, and a guardian. It was helpful, partial, and provisional. But the Spirit was something altogether different. The Spirit is powerful, saving, and transforming. And therefore, the new covenant is a whole different thing. It is magnitudes more wonderful and glorious, thanks be to God. To make that point, Paul now engages in extensive commentary on the last paragraph in Exodus 34. You may recall that story. Moses was going into the tent of meeting to speak to God, and when he came out, his face was shining, and the people were afraid. And so Moses put a veil over his face, but each time he went into the tent, he took the veil off. Paul seizes on that imagery to speak about the fading glory of the Old Covenant and the surpassing glory of the New Covenant. Verses 7 to 11 then represent a commentary on Exodus 34, 29 to 30, with verses 12 to 18 here providing commentary on Exodus 34, 33 to 35. Let's get into that. Verse 7. 
Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Colin Cruz helps us understand the nature of the comparison that Paul is making here. He says, Paul saw in the fading brightness a symbol of the transitory character of the Old Covenant and inferred that Moses, lacking boldness because he was the minister of a fading covenant, veiled his face so that the Israelites might not see its end, closed quote. So that's the basic idea that Paul is working here. He sees in the story in Exodus 34 an illustration of the Old Covenant itself. Like the glory on Moses' face, it was a fading glory. Moses' face was like one of those glow-in-the-dark frisbees that were popular when I was a kid. I don't know if they still make those. But you used to put a frisbee under a bright light for an hour or two, and then you would take it outside where it would glow in the dark. It would glow for three or maybe even four hours. But you could see that the glow was gradually fading. It was very bright for the first half hour or so, but then after that, it would begin to diminish slowly but surely over time. Well, so it was with Moses. So it was with the Old Covenant in general. Its usefulness faded in proportion to our captivity to sin. But the New Covenant suffers no such diminishment of glory. It will never fade. It will never fail. And it will never diminish or pass away in any sense. It will be as powerful and effective tomorrow as it will be 10,000 years from now should the Lord tarry. The new covenant is in every way far superior. It reveals the character of the Lord more clearly. It addresses the inherent weakness and fallenness of human beings more directly. It exerts a greater influence. It unleashes a greater power and it affects a greater transformation. It is immeasurably more glorious in the same way that the sun is more glorious than the stars. When the sun comes out, it does not destroy the stars, but it does cause the stars to fade from our view. So it is with the new covenant. As J.A. Bengal put it so many years ago, the greater light obscures the less. That seems to be the argument Paul is making here. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So again, as per verse 12, Paul's boldness has nothing to do with his own personal life situation and everything to do with the brilliance and power of the new covenant. Now, speaking of boldness, Paul now directly compares himself to Moses. Moses was an authoritative prophet of the old covenant, and Paul is an authoritative prophet of the new covenant. So the comparison is apt. It is bold, but it is apt. He says that, 
Moses veiled himself, in part because he didn't want the Israelites to see the fading of the Old Covenant glory. His concern, of course, was getting them to abide by the conditions of the Old Covenant. But Paul is operating with no such concern. The New Covenant, of which he is a minister, will never fade or fail or suffer diminishment of any kind, and therefore his boldness surpasses even that of Moses. Regardless, the minds of the Israelites were hardened anyway. They couldn't understand what the Old Covenant was really about. They didn't see what it was revealing because their minds were hardened. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul is saying here that only an authentically born-again, Christ-following, spirit-filled person can truly make use of the Old Testament. This is why we have to read our Bibles backwards, as it were, because only after we have seen Christ on the cross does the entire presentation make sense to us. The work of the Spirit, who is given to all those who come to Christ, is to open our eyes so that we can truly see God as He is, as He reveals Himself to be, in both the Old Covenant and climactically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul has more to say about the Holy Spirit in verse 17. He says, Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That phrase, the Lord is the Spirit, is sometimes confusing to Bible readers because often in the New Testament, the apostles will refer to Jesus as the Lord. And so we wonder if Paul is saying here that Jesus is the Spirit. But in this context, we must remember that Paul has been commenting on Exodus 34. And in that story, the Lord refers to God. So the Tyndale New Testament commentary says helpfully here, Normally, when Paul uses the word Lord, it refers to Christ. But here, where he is adapting the LXX, that's the Septuagint, reading of Exodus 34:34, the title must be understood to denote God, closed quote. So, the Spirit in us is God. That's what this text is saying. And where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. Immediately, we need to know what sort of freedom we're talking about here. Freedom to a 21st century North American reader might imply the freedom to do whatever one wants to do, or the freedom to live however one wants to live, but that is not the freedom being spoken of here. Wyatt Graham provides a useful summary. He says, when Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, he means that we are free to enjoy the blessings of the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, and free from the ministry of death in the law, close quote. That's exactly right. Most commentaries will offer a similar interpretation. The Expositor's Bible Commentary, for example, says here that the Holy Spirit sets a person free from bondage to sin, to death, and to the law as a means of acquiring righteousness, closed quote. That's freedom as conceived in the New Covenant. This happens as we behold the glory of God in Christ. To acknowledge Jesus Christ as the perfect revelation of God, to receive him in faith as our Lord and Savior, is to be free. That is an immediate reality with continuous and progressive consequences. Through beholding Christ in faith, we are immediately justified and progressively sanctified, to use theological language. 
That is to say, we are freed immediately from the penalty for sin and progressively from the power of sin. As we grow in Christ, we are transformed by one degree of glory to the next into the same image. This is the work of the Spirit in us. Thanks be to God. Now, I probably sprinkled some language in this section that does not appear in the ESV. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And so I think I have it memorized in three different translations and have memorized it at three different stages of my life when I was using these various translations. One of those is the NRSV, which I used in university and seminary. It renders the verse like this. And all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. That phrase, as though reflected in a mirror, is not a flourish or an amplification. That's a direct translation of the very unusual Greek word that Paul uses here. He uses the word katortridzomai, which literally means to show or see in a mirror. So the idea is that when we look at Christ, we are seeing what God wants us to see of him. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And as we see that, as we behold that in faith, in worship, in study, over time, we are changed. People become what they behold. People become what they worship. The whole body follows the head. So as the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is transformative. When the veil is removed and we are brought near, we are made human again and more than human. We are not just restored to our original nature. We are elevated into something beyond that. Paul doesn't say that we will by one degree of glory to the next be changed back to our original dignity and calling, as wonderful as that might be. Instead, he says that we will be changed into the very image, meaning the very image we are beholding. That is the image of Christ. So Mark Seifried says here, the Lord wills to speak with us face to face as he did with Moses. It is this relationship of communication and giving in which the gift is the giver himself that constitutes our salvation. The condemnation and disruption of communication worked by our rebellion and Moses' veil is overcome by that which the Lord, who is the Spirit, works. Close quote. Are you hearing that? I realize that scholars write differently than most people hear. So let me just bring that down to street level for you because it's absolutely amazing and I don't want you to miss it. What Paul is saying here is that every true believer has an experience akin to that enjoyed by Moses. We speak to God face to face, as it were, the veil having been removed, so we can see God and hear God as he reveals himself to be in the person and work of Christ. He is thus the ultimate gift that constitutes our salvation. God is is the gospel. God, as revealed in Jesus Christ, is the gospel. God is what we get through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God revealed in Christ and God moving and working in our hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be saved. It is to have access, intimacy, relationship, instruction, leadership, empowerment, and growth. Thanks be to God.
And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.